Cool. Um, if you could have Raymond's up open in front of you, that'd be great. Um, Uh, well, I wonder if you've had anything precious that you didn't know was precious at the time. And um, there is a story about an employee of Danny Warbucks, the big guy who owned the supermarkets, I think. Now, this employee worked tirelessly for the company without an ounce of credit, or so she thought. The employee was actually insulted by the small piece of gratitude she was paid each year with what she was thought was just a Christmas card. She thought in this card was a cheery Christmas message that was so distant from her reality of long hours and low pay. So, with the envelope that she thought was worthless, she just stuck them away in a drawer. Now, the employee, after a long service for Danny Warbucks, retired and sadly passed away. And when her son was searching through the house, he came across these envelopes. Now, given she'd worked for the company a long time, there was lots of them. Curious, he opened the first one. And it was a share for the company. He then opened hundreds of other envelopes to find they were all shares. You see, if these shares had been used at the appropriate time, they would have been worth millions to the employee. Now, how gutted would you be? I'm gutted when I drop £10 on the floor, okay? Now, in treating something so ordinary, you actually pass on along something that's so precious. You see, them shares would have changed the employee's life, wouldn't, wouldn't it? Where she went, uh, what her limitations were, what underpinned her values, what seemed so ordinary was so precious. And I wonder if you, as you sit there this morning, uh, you've just looked at that passage and thought that maybe it was just a bit of a white envelope. I mean, the list of names that John brilliantly read to us, are they just something we're going to just tuck away in a drawer? Are they really, is there really anything in them of any worth? But I hope you'll find that as we go through this text, it isn't just a list of names, but that in it, there's real meaning about what God thinks our church should look like. And I've got four headings for us today, and the first one I've given is the encouraging church. Great job, Leah. Now, I recently watched a film uh, with Adam Sandler called, uh, in it, and it was called Meet the Fockers. Now, I'm hoping that's not going to slip off the tongue today, okay? So it's called Meet the Fockers. And the, the point of the film is that Adam Sandler is put in these awkward situations with his father-in-law. You see, his father-in-law is a little bit of a perfectionist. Okay? He can't stand anything that isn't quite right. And Adam Sandler feels a sense of fear around him. The, the film goes at length to show that the father-in-law points out any weakness or fault with Adam, okay? Now, I say this because Mr. Fockers can be damaging to the church. You see, church is meant to be a place of encouragement, isn't it? But we can make it a, sense, a place of fear if we have such standards as Mr. Fokker. You see, if we have a standard of morality that, for
forget the big picture of Christ, then we're going to have a community that wears masks around each other. We're going to look to impress each other. We're going to try to impress those who we perceive are better than us. And we're going to try to crush those who we see as worse. You see, the danger of being a Mr. Prophet in our church community is real. And what will happen is we'll demand people, won't we, to be perfect. And when they don't meet our expectations, we we become cold and insular. Well, thank goodness this morning we haven't got Mr. Fokker staring straight back up at us, but we've got the Apostle Paul, haven't we? Now, if you notice in this text, the, the way that Paul greets fellow Christians, can you sense his deep love for them? So in verse 8, we've got Greek Ampelatus, it's the wrong pronunciation probably, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my friend, dear friend, Starkeys. You see, what Paul does here is he doesn't pick out faults, does he, with the Christians. He doesn't say, oh, greet Amphilatus, whom I love in the Lord, but actually I find really he annoys me. Or greet Starkeys, who's my dear friend, but really I haven't got any true time for him. You see, Paul simply says, I love these people. These are people who I have a deep love for, who God has made, who God has created, and who God has chosen. You see, Paul, better than anyone, knows the weaknesses, doesn't he, of people. We've seen in the chapters in Romans where he, you know, he corrects some of the stuff that they've been doing. He knows that people have weaknesses. But Paul knows also that these are children who are precious to God. You see, so often we can have the attitude, can't we, of Mr. Fokker. We can come to church and we can think, you know, I do love this person, but they really need to sort that area of their life out. You know, it can be rather flippant with them. In fact, we can distance ourselves from people just because there's a little bit of their life that we don't agree with. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be a community that looks to, to care and encourage one another with areas of our life that we struggle with. But sometimes we can get blinded by the smallest of problems that we miss out on the big picture. The big picture that God has called us into a community of believers who we should love and cherish. You see, we so often come to church, don't we, with a critical spirit rather than one of encouragement. And I hope that as you read the promises in the Bible and as we go on in our Christian lives, that you'll start seeing people as children of God. You'll start seeing them really as they are. And so that's my first point there, the encouraging church. I pray that we'd be a church that looks to encourage one another rather than having a spirit of kind of critique all the time. And my second point is uh, the serving church. Now, I don't know if you've seen the film About a Boy. Um, I think it was a a book before it was a film. And it was written by a guy called Nick Hornby. And in the film, you have Will, who's a rather rich uh, man. He's single, and he, I think he made his money from his father, who wrote a famous pop song. And so he's like living off the inheritance. Um, But Will, well, he does everything in his own terms, you see. He... He lives for expensive haircuts and playing snooker. 
everything he does is, is round his time scale. And he actually has a, a saying where he says, um, I am an island. And he actually refers to himself as Ibiza at one point in the film. So Will thinks that he's an island and everything kind of just happens around him. Now we might not have the riches or the means, might we, to live like Will. But we certainly can have the island mentality, can't we? You see, subtly, I think, in our own lives, we become islands. We develop our own thoughts and feelings. We develop our own urges and hunger for things that we're not really going to let go of until we get them. Now, Will, in this About a Boy film, I think is very important because when we read a text like that, we can think, well, how does someone go from being a Will-type character, someone who wouldn't do anything for anyone else unless it benefited him, to who we see in verses 3 and 4? Look down at verses 3 and 4. These are, are brilliant verses, aren't they? Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. You see, Paul here is greeting Priscilla and Aquila because they risked their lives for him. Now, can you imagine what that's like, risking your life for someone? I mean, I don't think I'll, I'll ever get... I, well, I don't know if I'll ever rescue anyone. But I can't imagine what that actually looks like, risking the very fact of your life for someone else. So how does someone whose will in About a Boy become Priscilla and Aquila, someone who's, who's willing to risk their life for someone else? And uh, I think as I was, I was chatting with Steve about this, he, he said something that was, that was very helpful. He said... Priscilla and Aquila can risk their lives because they realise that someone has given their life. You see, we get to the point of Priscilla and Aquila where we risk lives for other people, where we say no to our priorities and our um, goals in life, and we do things for other people, when we realise that someone greater has given their life for us. You see, it was Jesus, wasn't it, who stepped down into this world, the only person who had any right to call the shots, stepped down and endured the agony and the suffering of the cross so that we could gain from that. You see, it's not until we grasp that, until we grasp the way that Jesus made himself absolutely nothing that really frees us to serve someone else. And I'm not saying that here in this room there's going to be times when we actually have to risk our lives. I don't think many of us are going to jump in front of a bus and save someone. Although if you do see someone like that, please do it. But we, you know, it's, it's unlikely, isn't it? But we do have a choice, don't we? There does come choices in life, in life where we do have to, to weigh up our priorities and think actually... You know, where, where do I give my life? You see, it might not be jumping in front of a bus, but it might be what job you choose, which means your time in, in church is decreased. It might be that, you know, you, you look to, to put your kids in a school that perhaps might not be the best place for them, but you get to learn 
and, and be around the community that you're in. You see, it might even be letting the, the lads down at work on the banter just because you know that that's not helpful for you. You see, we all face choices in life. And we all need to decide, don't we, who we're going to serve. And we can only get to the point of Priscilla and Aquila if we do realise that one greater than us has served us. And my, my third point here is the vigilant church. Now, in um, the first 16 verses that we've looked at, uh, Paul has been greeting people, hasn't he? Well, in verse 17 and 18, and 19 actually, um, Paul takes on a different kind of uh, track here. Um, he actually gives people a warning. Okay? So he urges brothers there, and he gives them a warning to keep away from anything that you have learned. Now, in the New Testament, there's lots said about false teaching. In Colossians there's, and Galatians, there's a lot about uh, distinct heresies that come into the church. So, false teachers that are coming into the church and really opposing the gospel blatantly. Now, as I looked at these verses, it seems to me that this isn't exactly the same kind of track that Paul's going down there. He's actually talking about there anyone who comes into the church with an idea. So that can be anyone. It doesn't have to be someone in authority. All of us come into church, don't we, with different ideas. And Paul is warning here that there may be ideas and things that are contrary to the gospel and we need to keep away from them. And Paul here gives us the warning and he says, really, we're, like to, we're to be like a soldier, we're to watch out for anything, even when the ideas and, and values of people are so blatant against the gospel. You see, a soldier there has to be on duty, but a soldier equally has to be on duty, don't they, when things are quiet, when subtly things aren't quite right. You see, whether you're a philosopher from Paris, or you're the bloke that drinks down the pub on a Saturday night, our ideas and our values shape other people. We are walking newspapers. We have ideas on things. And the ideas that we convey to people, the things we, we say to people, they all impact the people around us. And Paul has outlined, hasn't he, in Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, that we're to not think more highly of ourselves. So we're not to think that we should take the place of God in anything that we do in our lives. Now I think some of the uh, smooth talk and flattery in verse 18 that Paul mentions there is actually people trying to say, look actually, you know, you're not that bad a person. You know, you don't really need God's grace every day. Them kind of things, subtle, but that can really ruin someone's uh, life as a Christian. You see, as Christians, we're to every day think of ourselves in sober judgment. And Paul here is warning against anyone or any idea or anything in your life that puts God in second place. It's a bit like um, the TV show uh, Hustle. I don't know if you've, if you've watched Hustle. The idea of it is that um, they basically con rich people out of their money. 
Um, it's a group of six people that, that do this. And the idea is that they, they go along to these rich people who have millions of pounds worth of fortunes, and they'll say to them that they can pretty much double their money. Okay. And they're very smooth, and they, they talk well. And you can see, actually, the, the rich people there having uh, like light bulbs come on, and they, they sometimes show clips of what the rich people could do if they had this extra money. Okay, driving fast cars, being a better business, things like that. Now, by the smooth talk and the flattery, these people there are actually deceived into thinking they're gaining something, when actually they're given something in the end for nothing. And really, that's all ideas are, aren't they, that are contrary to the gospel. You see, so often we are like the rich people, aren't we, that have light bulbs on when we see a new idea or a new way of living. And actually, we just end up with nothing. We're more distant from God, and we're more distant from uh, the God who's made this church. So as, I, as, I, as you sit there this morning, perhaps you need to think of areas of your life where perhaps you are being deceived into things other than the gospel. You know, maybe there's areas of your life where you know it's not quite right. You're not really seeing yourself in sober judgment. And Paul has given us a warning here to steer clear of them. And I hope that as a church we do help each other with these issues. I hope we're not a church that keeps things kind of wrapped up, but that we are able to talk about things that are contrary to the gospel. But equally, we need to watch out that people inside the church and people outside the church can challenge the gospel. Okay, and as I finish, there is one more verse uh, that Paul talks about, and this is a real encouragement for us here today. You see, verse 20 there, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, um, this Tuesday I went back to uh, Ipswich, uh, my, my home, and uh, I had a little bit of uh, a heartbreak because Ipswich lost in the semi-final against Arsenal. Um, now, we did expect to lose, um, but at half-time when it was nil-nil, I was, you know, I was thinking, are we actually going to get to Wembley? But uh, they ended up being us 3-0, which is you know, very gutting. Um, so I've used this as a Sunday morning to kind of uh, make myself feel better about myself. So I'm going to tell you about another um, semi-final that Ipswich in that were a little bit better. Now, with the Liverpool fans here, Matty and Steve, probably thinking that um, the semi-final this was was a little bit smaller than perhaps the, the Champions League final. But anyway, Ipswich were playing a team uh, to get to Wembley, and the prize was actually getting in, in the Premiership, which sounds a bit sad. Um, so anyway, we, we're playing this team, and it's, it's Bolton who we're playing. Now, finally, after it was a very dramatic game, and we're finally winning 5-3 in extra time, and Bolton have two players sent off, so they're down to nine men. Um, Ipswich do mess up a lot of things, but we knew definitely that they weren't going to mess this up. You see, our tickets to Wembley were booked. We were just waiting for the referee to blow the whistle so that could be a final reality. And you see in verse 20 there that God crushing Satan is a certainty. Do you see that? 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, it's not that God might crush Satan, or he might weigh up whether he's going to crush Satan. No, God has won the victory. Satan will soon be crushed. And as Christians, we're waiting, aren't we, for that glorious day when Jesus comes back and we see in full that God has won. You see, we know God is faithful, don't we? We know that in Genesis 3, where he first says a serpent will be crushed, that he sends Christ to defeat Satan at the cross. And so we have full confidence, don't we, that God is going to come back, he is going to reign. Now, in a year where already we've seen two Christians be sued for their views on sexual relationships, and where countless Christian uh, missionaries have been persecuted all around the world. You see, this verse 20 can kind of challenge, can't it, perhaps? Sorry, the verse here can seem a bit unrealistic, can't can't it, with all that going going on? And as you go through life when things are difficult at work, or or in the home, or even in church, you see, that verse can seem like it's just not going to come true, is it? But we have hope, don't we? This is God's word. God is faithful, and he says he will crush Satan. So as we go on in life, we can be fully confident that even though we do face difficult circumstances now, it's not going to be like that forever. Jesus will come back, and he will reign. And my prayer for us as a church is that we will be a church that is shaped by this truth. We'd be a church that does wait for Jesus to come back. We won't listen to ideas that say he's not. And we will really believe and not be ashamed of the gospel. I'm just going to pray. And we'll sing. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that uh, Jesus is coming back. Lord, I thank you that he has defeated death at the cross. Lord, I pray for us, Lord, as we face so many challenges, Lord, to the gospel. Lord, whether it's uh, the media, Lord, whether it's even our our own friends or family who tell us otherwise. Lord, I pray that we would believe that you're coming back. I pray that we wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Lord, I pray that when we realise, Lord, that Jesus is coming back, it would mean that we serve one another in love. And I pray you'd help us today, Lord, to, and for every other day, Lord, to live life, Lord, unashamed of the gospel. In your name, amen.